I'll uh, read our scripture passage this morning now, and then um, without further ado, I'll call up Will um, for a message this morning. From the second chapter of Matthew, reading verses 1 through 12, it's the story of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the reading of God's word. All right. Good morning, everyone. So I am feeling a little bit better now. I had uh, I had been sick for a while and then not sleeping, and those two usually go well together. So then it was kind of a delayed recovery. Well, I finally uh, built up enough energy to go to the gym. Uh, I got talked into buying a gym membership, and. Uh, It's one where you schedule a class, so I scheduled a class and I went, and uh, I came out of there feeling good that I had energy, but I'd uh, overused perhaps some muscles that I don't use uh, very often, and so then I had replaced my recovery from my illness with a recovery from my exercise, Uh, so the recovery continues. Um, I had been uh, wanting to uh, be more active for a while, and <clears throat> I don't know if, if I was in the right place or the wrong place, but uh, somebody was there with a clipboard and explained how their exercise system worked, and it seemed appealing, and so I signed on the, dot, on the dotted line. Um, I, I'm not really a fan of gyms, and I probably, if we were to do a survey, probably most of you would feel the same. Um, I would have been one of the kids that on my report card there would have been a note 
um, that I perhaps had an inflated sense of justice, an overactive sense of justice. This is, this is kind of a kind thing that teachers say uh, to kids who complain a lot. <clears throat> or we, say, we might say this about our own kids, that they have, they have a, <clears throat> an exaggerated sense of justice, or, or even more complimentary, a keen sense of justice. Right? Meaning that they are very well aware of when something is wrong, when somebody has done something wrong. And uh, I don't know if I complained that much at school, but I, I certainly felt that awareness a lot of times. And so there are a lot of places I don't like to go because they are inherently unjust, inherently imbalanced. And that's sort of what happens at a gym. When you go to the gym, there are mirrors all around the walls so that not only can you watch yourself, but you can see how everybody else is doing in comparison. And it's easy to see that when you look, the other people are staying on the treadmill longer, the other people are lifting heavier weights than you are, and the other people are wearing tighter clothes than you are, and they look better on them than they look on you. The gym is an inherently unjust and imbalanced place. <coughs> Well, the gym that I go to, uh, it doesn't fall into that trap somehow. And not, not by design, it's sort of an accidental benefit. Now, this, this might sound like a commercial, um, and I do get a commission if anybody's interested, but um, <clears throat> let me tell you how this, uh, how this gym works. Uh, their theory, and they have uh, scientific backing for all of this, uh, is that when you exercise, your heart rate should go back and forth from a, uh, <clears throat> a comfortable resting position uh, to a, an active position and then back to resting, back and forth. Uh, so, and these are all color-coded. Uh, so when you're there, you're wearing uh, a heart rate monitor. And you're wearing it on, on a part of your body. Most people wear it on the arm. Um, I have one that it straps to a kind of a clip that goes around my chest, and all through the class, I'm just adjusting it because it's uncomfortable, and I get zero sympathy from all of the women in the room. That's something they're quite familiar with. Um, but I, uh, as you're wearing it, then your little device is communicating via Bluetooth to their computers, and it's constantly reading your heart rate, and based on who you are, how much you weigh, how tall you are, whatever, then it calculates what your ideal heart rate or your maximum heart rate should be. And so then based on the percentage of that, it shows you a color. And if you're in the green color, that means that's sort of resting. So right now we would all be at the gray color because we're just sitting here doing nothing. Um, then a little bit more once we're walking around, then we might get into the blue color. Um, and then green is kind of a healthy, active, but resting color. So you want to be in the green from time to time at the times that they tell you. They, that's their job. And then you want to be in the orange when you're supposed to be being active. If you get into the red, that's too high and uh, you're at risk. And then you're allowed to take a break. So it's almost like a kind of a hidden benefit. Like, oh, I can't work as hard as you guys. See, the screen's red. I'm allowed to sit here. Um, <clears throat> But what happens is then you're constantly worrying about that because you want to get a whole bunch of orange points and whatever. It's kind of uh, childish in that sense. But you're trying to get the right amount of orange points 
to uh, show that you're getting exercise and then calorie points, whatever. Uh, but what happens then is you're always wondering where you are on this scale. So then you look at the screen, and when you're looking at the screen, you're not looking at everybody else. And there's an incredible comfort there that a lot of people, a lot of the customers uh, have talked about in the reviews online that I thoroughly researched, and the other people that I work out with afterwards, they've talked about that they feel less insecure because while they're working out, they're not looking at other people. They're not comparing themselves to other people. They're just looking at the screen. And so you might talk to the person beside you. Uh, you might laugh along with the instructor's jokes, but we're paying attention to the screen. We're all looking towards the light, right, to kind of draw out the, uh, the metaphor here. We're all looking towards the light to see how we are doing. And because we're doing that, we all work out more effectively together. It's, it's sort of a strange feeling, um, but we are all there, we're all working, we're all thinking about how we are doing, and we're not judging others, and we're not judging ourselves based on the others. We are just following one particular goal, and it's sort of refreshing. Um, there's so much that, that could be said about this story the story of the Magi, uh, it almost feels like it doesn't quite belong there. It seems to me if, if, if I were to be writing this story, I would feel like I was kind of ripping off my readers. Because there are so many questions that naturally come out of this that the text doesn't even try to answer. Now part of this is what happens when you take a story from one culture. Uh, so this happened within a Jewish, a Hebrew and Aramaic culture. Then the story was written down in Greek, and then we took that story, put it in English, and somewhere along the line we've lost some meaning. Somewhere along the line uh, there are words and, and images that, that have lost their power. So then we have to do sort of extra work. But at the same time, we find in these stories, the whole Bible comes to us that way, and yet we find beautiful and profound meaning. So here are these, uh, these men, presumably it was mostly men in the, in the crowd that, that would have come. And they've, uh, they've seen a star that connects somehow to some writings that they have that tells them a new king has been born in Israel. They see the star as it comes up. Uh, in the, it says in the east, um, but it, somehow the star appeared in the sky. They wouldn't have followed it to the east because they were, that would have taken them farther away from Jerusalem. But they see it. They know what it means. They go and they bring gifts. They bring monetary gifts. Myrrh and frankincense, they had uses in that society, but mostly they were used um, in a kind of barter economy so they could be traded um, when, when people didn't want to take gold. But they come and they give these gifts and then they sneak away. And uh, they don't really know what's exactly happened. They've angered Herod. They find out in a dream. Uh, so they've come to bring a gift and they maybe have set off a sort of chain reaction somehow. But all they were doing was following the light. Right? They had read through their writings, through their ancient wisdom, 
that there would be a light that signified a new king was born, and they went. And that's all they were doing. And uh, two years later, two years, it seems, after Jesus was born, these guys show up. Mary and Joseph, living in a home somewhere. They've, uh, they've established themselves as a family. Uh, they've, they kind of have, it usually kind of takes about two years to figure out what you're doing with your first kid. And so maybe they've gotten to that point, and then all of a sudden there's a strange knock at the door. There, there are times where I knock on the door and I'm like, wait a second, I don't know, what, how am I going to explain to people what I'm doing here? Uh, <clears throat> that happened, um, I, I wrote on the Facebook group of a trip I did in Ontario, I went to visit an old friend, I didn't know if they still lived there, I hadn't seen them in, in 12 years, uh, would they even remember me, whatever. So I might have a, a story to tell to the person who answers the door, but I had a hunch, so I knocked on the door. Here are these men, they, they show up, what are they doing there? Why have they come? What are, what's the point of, of the gifts? All of that, we, we don't get the, the dialogue. We don't, we don't get the dialogue, we don't get their explanation. They have come with one purpose, though. They have come to give tribute. They have followed the light. So we've used light as a theme this year during Advent, and so we've been lighting candles and uh, using that as a, as a symbol of our hope. And so the wise men, the magi, they had hope, and so they were following this star, following the light. Uh, light has a lot of uses in society, and when you're, uh, when you're resting like I have been from, from my cold, uh, then you want to rest in dark as long as possible which is relatively easy to do this time of year when there's less sunlight. But then all of a sudden somebody shows up and they turn the light on and they pull the blinds and there's light coming in. And then you can see what's happened. Wait a second, I haven't been moving around for a little while. I have some cleaning to do. Uh, now that the light's coming in, I can see what's going on and I can see what needs to be done. Right? Light reveals imperfection in a way that sometimes makes us insecure. Uh, I, was, I was reading uh, recently about the invention of the photocopier, which sounds like a, a weird little story to be reading. Uh, but what happened was the photocopier was, was something that, it, that had been in the works for a long time. There were a whole bunch of people trying to invent a machine that would quickly copy uh, sheets of paper uh, for use in business. And uh, most of them were following pretty much the same technology as a photograph. They would take a picture of the paper, create a negative, and then recreate the original um, by using the negative. That was uh, wasted a lot of energy and materials, and it wasn't all that fast. Uh, but there was another guy who was sort of working on a different kind of idea, and he had a hunch of how things might work differently. He, had, he was a lawyer, um, but as a, as a law student, uh, he didn't have a lot of money, so he would go to the library and he would have to hand write out the journals that he was reading because he didn't have enough money uh, to buy his own copies of those same journals. And as he's handwriting all of this uh, copious uh, sheets of paper out, he kept thinking to himself, there's got to be a better way. Well, um, everybody else was, was taking a photograph, uh, but he had sort of a different idea. 
Now, um, the science of it might get lost on some people, um, but I found uh, a, a, a beautiful metaphor in it, uh, which is why I'm telling the story now. So what he realized was that if you took a, a certain sheet of metal and uh, you put a little bit of an electric charge on it, uh, then the char that charge would attract um, ink particles. Everybody else was using wet ink. He was using powdered ink. And so he knew that if, if a sheet, this sheet of metal, I forget which kind it was, if it was uh, charged, uh, with, if there was some sort of charge to it, it would attract those particles. But the way that it would use, with it, so he would put a glass on top of a charged sheet like that. He'd put a piece of paper on top, and then he would shine a light through the paper. And where the light came through the white, well, then the charge was taken off. The charge was essentially cleaned off of the sheet by the light. And where there was black from the ink from the writing, then the charge hadn't been removed. And so then the, the static parts of the, of, the, of the plate would attach itself to the, to the ink, and then you'd stick the paper on top of that, and then he could make copies better and more efficiently than the competition. <clears throat> now, not everybody, and I certainly don't, didn't know this ahead of time, and I've never found a practical application otherwise for this information, but light removes charge, uh, electric charge from, I think it was tin. Now, that's an entirely useless piece of information to all of us, but when put together, he realized that he could do something with this, and the Xerox paper company uh, was born from that. Uh, that's what Xerox uh, sort of means originally, draw, dry writing. It kind of differentiated him from the people using wet ink. But light has that power to clean. So the, the wise men were following the light. What was that light supposed to be doing? The, the story comes to us because the story of Jesus isn't limited just to Israel. It isn't limited just to Bethlehem. It isn't limited to Galilee. It isn't limited just to the land that Jesus walked or to the people that Jesus associated with. The story of Jesus is light for the world. And the story of the Magi is here because we know that they at least recognized at some level what it whether or not there was a later adaptation of Jesus' teachings, we don't know. But there's a recognition here that the message of Jesus was light for the world from the very beginning. And so the light shone into that situation, removed the divisions, removed the injustices. So how have we done with that? Sometimes we, we do pretty well. Uh, and sometimes not so well, because it's easy as human beings to stay where it's comfortable, to stay with our own people, with our own language and our own culture, and uh, we're not faulted for that. But the good news has to go beyond that. The good news has to go beyond. So um, there, there are lots of examples, and, and we could let our uh, critics tell the stories of the times where the Christian message has been um, destructive, and it has hurt the cause of unity. 
Um, those are, I believe, stories of where we have forgotten who we are. And we have allowed our quest for power and success to overcome uh, the, the Christian message. Uh, but the story of the church is one of unity when it shouldn't have been. So, um, I mentioned before that the Bible is translated, uh, the story at least that we read today was translated from, from Greek into English. Now, if we were to be gathering in a church in Germany, we would read the story in German. Then the Bible will have been translated from Greek into German. Uh, we could gather and uh, we could worship in Korea. And then we would say that this story has been translated from Greek into Korean. We could gather in remote colonies in Africa, in Asia, all around the world, and we could read the Bible in the local language, and we could tell the same story of how it had been translated. And none of us would ever say, wouldn't it be great if we were reading the Bible in Greek instead? Because we don't speak Greek. We wouldn't sort of see it on, a, on any higher plane. And none of us say, well, the, the Bible has more truth in the Greek, so we should all learn the Greek. We don't do that. We don't place one translation above another because we don't put another one people above another. Because the light of the gospel has removed that. But that's not true for just about anything else. <clears throat> when, I, when I was in Korea, I went to visit the university library from time to time. And there you could read Shakespearean writings translated into Korean. And I'm sure that the people who gathered together to read Shakespeare in Korean enjoyed what they were reading. And when the literature professor would tell them about what they were reading, they would constantly say, well, if you would read it in English, it would be better. And the same thing, there was a, there was a local writer in, in the village where I lived there in, in Korea. Well, he had, he had died, but that village was famous for having been the birthplace of that writer. And there was a museum, and there was all sorts of cultural stuff. And I had sort of thought, oh, would, I would really like to read this writer's uh, works. Are they translated into English? And I had a bunch of the local people, they said, yeah, but they're just not as good. Of course they're just not as good. Because it isn't just writing, it isn't just stories. All of the sort of cultural understanding is wrapped into that, that's just wrapped into the language. And I, as an outsider with my English, wouldn't pick all of that up. We could say the same thing about just about every piece of literature, including some uh, spiritual works. Uh, when I talk to my uh, Sikh friends, uh, they have their sacred writings at the, at the most prominent position in all of their gathering spaces. And they are read out loud, uh, but in a dialect that a lot of people don't understand anymore. They're available in English, but nobody reads them in English because it's just not as beautiful or as powerful in English. And the same thing is true of the Quran that you can read it in English, you can read it in Swahili, but it's not as good if you're not reading it in Arabic. This is what, the, this is what Muslim scholars will, will say. We don't have the same problem uh, in the church, that when we read Scripture, whether we're reading the King James or we're reading more contemporary English, there is new wisdom to be found. And some of us will like 
the old stuff. Some of us will, will read the new stuff more easily, and that's fine. But all of it contains the light. Because when we look to the light, then the distortions are, are obvious. And pretty soon all we're seeing is the light. So this is what the, this is what the Magi have done. They have turned their faces towards the star. They've set aside their own personal comfort. They're just traveling from an unknown land, long distance. They're bringing gifts. What were they going to get out of that? We don't know. Was there a political partnership? Well, if that was the idea, it didn't last because King Herod certainly didn't like the idea. Were they getting some sort of uh, religious benefit? Did they see this as a religious donation? Uh, Was this some sort of act of charity? Did they see Israel as being poor and needing help? Maybe. We We don't know any of that. It's not written into the story. But they set out. They, they took a long trip, which was perhaps more dangerous than they realized, uh, which was suddenly communicated to them in the dream. They were taking on all of this risk because of the light. They knew there was something meaningful and important in that. This is what we are supposed to be doing on an ongoing basis, that we are following the light. We take chances because we're following the light. We live like Jesus bringing risk on ourselves, taking ourselves out of our comfort zones because it is worthwhile, because the light compels us to do that. So let us use uh, these strange men that we know almost nothing about as an example, that they turned to the light, they followed the light, and it led them to Jesus. So let us also follow the light to find Jesus and to show others the way. Amen.